Welcome to the 322nd of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I discuss the dangerous world of COVID conspiracies with my guest, Anna Muldoon, of the School for the Future of Innovation and Society at Arizona State University. Just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID calls live on weekdays at its new time, 6 p.m. Eastern time. Just go to the COVID calls YouTube channel to watch. One small program note, we do have a second COVID calls episode today, which will be beginning right after my discussion with Anna Muldoon. So please do come back at 7 p.m. Eastern time for my discussion with public health expert and longtime COVID calls friend Esther Chernak. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. As of today, August 17th, 2021, there are 4,373,870 deaths from COVID-19 globally. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. Rather than continuing to read so many of the COVID death numbers as I have been doing these past months, numbers which strike me now is inaccurate and not a good way to visualize the suffering of this disaster, I'm going to begin raising different COVID measures that I'd like to know about in addition to the death totals. Here's a number we don't know that I would like to know. How many delayed surgeries have there been in the United States due to COVID-19? How much extra pain have people suffered because of these delays? That's a COVID metric I'd like to explore. I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy on COVID calls for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline is, COVID-19 killed their brother, misinformation about the virus divided their family. This is written by Brett Schultes and appeared in WESA Radio Pittsburgh, June 9th, 2021. More than four months after Kyle Dixon died from COVID-19, his older sisters found constant reminders of him at the house he had shared with their dad. The tent, the canoe, and hiking boots that Kyle once used to explore Clearfield County the grass that he used to mow, grown tall in his absence, the bottles of cough medicine he turned to as the virus began to destroy his lungs. Stephanie Rimmel remembered a precious life cut short. I'll never get to be at his wedding, Rimmel said. I'll never get nieces and nephews. I'll never see him old. That was the last birthday in September we got to celebrate with him. Kyle, a state prison guard at SCI Hotsdale, was just 27 when he died on January 20th. That date, the last day in office of former President Donald Trump, who Kyle voted for, isn't lost on Rimmel. She blamed the former president for not telling the truth about the virus to the people who would believe him above all others. She pointed to Trump's statement in a taped interview with author Bob Woodward released last year, where he said he was intentionally downplaying how bad COVID-19 could be. Rommel recounted more falsehoods, including some repeated by Trump that became mainstays last year. 
Masks don't work, for example. The virus is a democratic hoax to win the election. Only old people or sick people are at risk, for example. Rimmel said her brother believed a lot of that misinformation. What people believed about the virus split their family apart. Stephanie Rimmel's mom, Cindy Catalano, is a nurse in Pittsburgh. And she began telling Stephanie and her sister, Jennifer Dixon, about COVID-19 cases and patients. So they had one perspective. The virus is real and it can be deadly. Meanwhile, friends and relatives in Clearfield County believed otherwise. Even as COVID-19 ripped through the family, sending Kyle and 29-year-old Jennifer to the hospital and sickening seven family members in all, false claims around mask wearing and the deadliness of the virus remained. As Ramel watched her brother's condition worsen, she listened to her aunt, a QAnon follower, explain that Kyle had caught, quote-unquote, a more deadly version of the virus that had been introduced to prisons as part of a plan to kill incarcerated people. None of that is true. While Kyle was being put on an ECMO machine, a device that oxygenates a person's blood after one of the last stops before death from COVID-19, another relative bragged about how she couldn't wait for someone to tell her to wear a mask so that she could ream them a new one, she said. Even after friends and family saw Kyle's body in its casket, Kyle's death hasn't changed the kinds of things they post on Facebook, according to Jennifer. They're back to posting their same stuff, Dixon said. It's a hoax, that sort of stuff. Jennifer has had experience in healthcare as a patient care technician in Pittsburgh. She recounted the graphic medical details of Kyle's final days, a tracheotomy tube that excoriated his skin, a rash on Kyle's forehead from where a tube leading into his body was taped, the blood that ran from his nose, and the gauze nurses put in his nostrils in an attempt to stop it. Jennifer wishes people would understand what Kyle went through. I wish that they could have been where his last days, could have been there his last days and watched him suffer, she said. Watch his heart still be able to beat, his kidneys still producing urine because they were so strong, his liver still working, everything. It was his lungs that were gone, his lungs, and that was only due to COVID. After his body gave out, Stephanie and Jennifer asked the funeral home to tell people how Kyle died. His obituary reads, Kyle had so much more of life to live and COVID-19 stopped his bright future. Please be vigilant that this disease is real and can take a loved one's life for no reason. Ramel said they hope this message might help others, but while the conversation among COVID deniers has shifted away from all-out refutation of the virus to conspiracy theories around vaccines, many people she knows are still eager to dismiss the virus. Often when someone learns about Kyle's death, Ramel said, she and her family find themselves having to answer a series of questions. Did he have pre-existing conditions? Was he overweight? And some people want to know whether Kyle had gotten the vaccine, suggesting that it, rather than the virus, was to blame. Stephanie said she has no idea how many other people might be going through the same thing, but don't speak up because they fear how family and people in their communities might respond. According to funeral director Mike Kuhn, that concern is well-founded, and it's playing out in other parts of the state as well. Kuhn runs three funeral homes in Berks County, Pennsylvania. He said he had more than 700 funerals over the 12-month period after the virus hit Pennsylvania in 2020. He said after he saw 100 deaths due to COVID-19, he stopped counting. That was months ago. Deciding whether to include the cause of death in an obituary is a personal choice, Kuhn said. For every person who tells Kuhn to include COVID-19 in an obituary, there are others who want to bury that fact. I've had people say, 
my mother or father was going to die probably in the next year or two anyway, and they were in a nursing home and then they got COVID. And, you know, I don't really want to give a lot of credence to COVID. Kuhn said he's seen people go so far as to beg doctors to change their relative's cause of death on the death certificate. Death certificate. His job is to support families, not tell them what to do or be their therapist, he noted. Still, his profession has given him insights into how people grieve. And I'm not a grief expert. I run funerals every day for a living, but I would think that the goal with death is to get to acceptance, and to do that requires a lot of work. Julia Dunn is a grief expert, and she said there's a term for what people are going through, disenfranchised loss. Dunn is the clinical director at Olivia's House, a grief and loss center for children located in York and Adams counties. A disenfranchised loss is one that's not widely accepted by societal norms, Dunn said. Her litmus test, imagine you're on stage speaking to a crowd. If you'd feel uncomfortably uncomfortable saying how your loved one died, that's probably a disenfranchised loss. Dunn sees it all the time after someone dies from drug use or suicide. A big part of her job is to help children understand what happened and help parents explain what happened in a non-judgmental way. With COVID-19 deaths, the dynamic is a bit different, she said. In many cases, it's not so much that the family is ashamed of how the person died. It's that in some cases, they don't want to admit they were wrong. In some cases, people don't want to hear others tell them, I told you so. A family that has lost a loved one to COVID thinks other people might feel superior to them because they didn't have a loved one die to COVID, Dunn said. For her, it's critical that people are able to talk openly and honestly about what happened. That's something she's worked on recently in a peer support group, where three of the children present lost parents to the virus. She said people can overcome their loss, but they have to confront it first. For Stephanie Rimmel and Jennifer Dixon, one of the hardest things to confront is the fact that their brother didn't think the virus was real until he got sick. But that idea didn't come from nowhere, Rimmel said. And while many have moved on from the virus that killed has killed more than 600,000 people in the U.S., she hasn't forgotten how the virus was wrapped in misinformation by some of the people in power who could have made a difference. Jennifer remembered how lonely she was during her own four-day stay in the hospital with COVID-19. Her grief over Kyle's death is difficult to separate from her anger that her brother had to learn the reality of the virus while alone and dying. There's a message from Kyle in Messenger, Jennifer recounted. It said, I didn't think this was real. I know it's real now. Okay, I'd like to turn to my conversation for today. This is one I've really been looking forward to. Let me introduce an apocalypticism around infectious disease outbreaks. She's a former science policy advisor in the Office of the Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response at the Department of Health and Human Services. While at that unit, she focused on international public health systems, laboratory biosafety and biosecurity, science communication, and policy development for regulating genetically altered biological organisms. She has published peer-reviewed articles on biodefense history, U.S. implementation of non-proliferation treaties, and infectious disease surveillance systems. She holds a master's degree in public health from George Washington University and is currently a PhD student in the School for the Future of Innovation and Society at Arizona State University. Anna Muldoon, it's great to see you. Thanks so much for joining me on COVID Calls. Hi, Scott. Good to see you. I'd like to start the way I generally do, just finding out where you're calling from and what the pandemic is looking like there today. 
So I am calling today from New Jersey. I'm visiting my parents um, and I am, COVID is, COVID is okay. Um, it's not great, but the county I'm in is mostly masking and our case counts are pretty low. So we're doing all right, but I think everyone's feeling a little bit nervous about Delta and what that's gonna mean for how well we're doing right now. You're muted, Scott. I'm only two days back from a break and I'm making every mistake. I'm trying to get them all out of the way. Um, so it's uh, sorry, situation. sorry about that. And thank you for your kind correction. Um, I've been talking to people in the last few months, asking them uh, they wouldn't mind sharing a memory of this time period. It's, it's almost an impossible question to name one, but I wonder if you wouldn't mind sharing something that resonates strongly about this time period for you. Um, hmm. Uh, there are a lot of them. Um, since I have been both working in public health and working on my dissertation at the same time. Uh, you know, I think one of the strongest moments for me has been working with some of the students we had working on state level COVID data and how hard it was for them to see those numbers day after day. Uh, so a lot of a lot of my kind of strongest memories are bound up with trying to help them learn how to do that in ways that are healthy and that they can get through. Um, and counseling them on if you're gonna work in public health, you're gonna have to learn when to take a break and walk away for a day. So, yeah. Let me follow up on, thank you for sharing that. Um, let me follow up on you know just a question related to your previous work in government. Mm -hmm. So from your vantage point, everything that you've seen, the good and the bad, uh, maybe in this federal response to COVID. What's your take? Um, I mean, <clears throat> I think that BARDA, uh, the Biological Advanced Research and Development Authority, I always have to check whether it's authority or agency, um, did incredibly well uh, getting us vaccines, getting us therapeutics. I think that those programs have been building for a long time and I am impressed with how well they functioned. I think that the government communication was not what it needed to be. And the, the lack of certainty and the lack of communicating about that the uncertainties involved in COVID really hampered the response and the public's ability to feel confident in what they were doing and in the systems that we have. How do you account for that? I mean, is that a, a, a Trump effect or is it somehow too simple to, to blame that on one administration? And there's something deeper in the structure, the way people were trained or the way these government agencies are set up that that problem in communicating uncertainty showed itself. Um, I mean, I think a lot of it was political, which is frustrating and unfortunate. Um, you know, the agencies that deal with public health inside the government do have many people who are incredibly well-trained in public communication and in data communication. I think that a lot of them were not allowed to exercise their skills the way they should have been. And I think that as the politicization of the outbreak, now pandemic, sped up so quickly, um, good public health messaging from kind of any agency, right? 
federal state could not overwhelm the flood of political statements, particularly in the early days. So let's talk about your new project, your new book that's out, and you can tell people how they can get it, titled COVID-19 Conspiracy Theories, QAnon, 5G, The New World Order, and Other Viral Ideas. I have so many questions about this, but maybe you can just start by telling us what's it like to get a book out in the middle of a pandemic? Uh, insane, actually. <laughs> it was, you know, I I had absolutely fantastic co-authors who brought me into this, who have published books before. Um, and without them doing this would have been a crazy project. So everyone kind of threw everything they knew at the page and then we rearranged to try to get all of our ideas in. Um, it was a little bit uh, hectic. Let's go with hectic to try to write that fast while also, you know, attempting to be a graduate student and working with COVID data. But we only captured, you know, the first six, seven months of conspiracies. So there's probably another volume that needs to be written someday <laughs> once we've all slept a bit more than we have recently. <laughs> I just want to make a note that, that um, I'm from the previous century in terms of my graduate training and the, there's so many graduate students publishing books while they're still in graduate school is a testament, uh, not only to the competitiveness of the academic environment, too competitive if you ask me, but um, the work ethic of, of uh, you know, scholars right now and in the pandemic. And to get this out, sort of documenting, I mean, I'm glad you didn't wait till it was somehow over to write this book, but to go ahead and, and approach it around these first few months, I think that's, that's really important. Easy for me to say, right? But um, <laughs> thanks for that contribution. And maybe we can just start. I mean, what are some of the main um, conspiracy theories you're tracking in the project? So um, it, you know, obviously has shifted a bit over time. Uh, in the early days, a lot of the conspiracy theories were about COVID's origins. Uh, unfortunately, many of those are still circulating and will continue to circulate, I suspect, some of them possibly forever. Um, there were a lot of conspiracies in those early days about the government's response or lack thereof and what that was going to do to global societies. Um, because, of course, New World Order conspiracy theories are incredibly old and they come up with every outbreak and they actually come up with a lot of different kinds of disasters. So those spun up very quickly. Of course, the minute anybody started talking about a vaccine, we started getting discussions of microchips and vaccines. Those are also pretty old conspiracies that we've seen with other vaccines in the past. Um, the unfortunately pretty common um, anti-Semitic conspiracy theories that date all the way back to poisoned well theories. Um, and then the ones that were that I thought were incredibly in interesting um, that my colleague Ashley Marshall is really the expert in, not me, um, are the 5G ones, which, you know, we've seen those around pretty much every technology. So 4G, 3G, 2G, radio. Um, but they the way that those combine concern about technology with concern about disease are they're really interesting. And I learned a ton from Ashley while we were working on the book. Yeah, I don't know much about that. I mean, even as you're going through these, I have a sort of a, a too superficial understanding of some of them. The New World Order theory, for example, can you go a little further on explaining that? 
So New World Order theories now sort of have two branches. There's a secular set and a religious set. Um, I try to focus mostly on the secular set because I am not a scholar of religion and don't want to judge anybody's beliefs. So the New World Order theories basically circle around the idea that there is a cabal of some organization that is going to take over the government, has infiltrated the government, and will eventually you know, displace all democracy and run the world. So those could be, sometimes it's within the US government, um, and quite often it, there are conspiracies around the UN. So they, okay. a lot of them interestingly actually cite religious texts in secular spaces, which was a lot of what I was working on before COVID conspiracy ate my life. <laughs> and and how far back can you trace that one? Uh, depends on what you consider New World Order theories. Um, mm -hmm. Some of my co-authors would say that they go back several hundred years. Uh, mm -hmm. The Illuminati kind of falls into that category, though it's not specifically New World Order, and those have been around for a very long time. Um, the idea that a cabal is running the government and going to institute social control is incredibly old. Um, it's a very old fear in human societies. So disease conspiracy is not unique to COVID. It's mm -hmm. uh, something that has, but it's it's taken a, a new form or we just think it's new because we experience it. Case studies because so many of the theories that appear are similar. Um, and one of the things that I find the most fascinating about my work, which of course we're all still working on more detail to trace further back, is the ways in which some of the same conspiracies appear over and over and over, particularly in the 20th century. Um, conspiracies about disease origins are incredibly common. So whether an outbreak was caused by human action in some way, uh, quite often, arguments about whether something is a biological weapon or whether it escaped a laboratory. Um, and we have seen those around Zika. We've seen them around Ebola. There were a couple around H1N1. And you can just keep going back and finding them. Um, one of my theories on that is that humans really want someone to blame. When, when everything is chaos, we just as a species appear to really want to be able to say that guy did it. Um, instead of sometimes nature is chaos and comes for us. Is there something structural about that? I mean, I think about even just the term conspiracy and this idea that there's there's the world that we see and then there's the secret and there's mm -hmm. groups of people who are operating in secret with nefarious goals. Mm -hmm. And of course, that's a feature of political economy going as far back as we have recorded history of people in government. <laughs> Right. So, but as a historian, I'm I'm uncomfortable saying there's something like universal about conspiracy that social context always has to have a role to play there. How do you balance those two? Um, <laughs> with difficulty. So, I it's really easy, I think, to overgeneralize about conspiracy theory as a whole, um, or to try to turn all conspiracy theories into simple objects. Uh, and I would say that that's dangerous because we start losing what these narratives actually are and what they're about and the ways that they are specific to a moment. 
Um, so while conspiracy theories have some characteristics in common, they also are really specific often to location, to the political moment, to the type of government, um, and frequently sort of down to the ways that you'll get many different strands of the same conspiracy theory as a sort of general type. Um, and those will be different down to like different towns having different ones. Is there something, you know, I'm really interested in this idea of, of a conspiracy theory having a very long life. Is, is there something, I mean, is it passed along in your research or passed along literally through institutions that have some vested interest in holding that conspiracy together because it does some work for them politically? I mean, I think about organizations like the, you know, John Birch Society or others, you know, anti-communist societies in the 1950s that had their reasons to talk about, you know, water being poisoned by the government, various kinds of things. And it served a political purpose for them. And it worked, I guess, to generate enough members and just enough money that it was valuable to them. I'm, I'm laying aside the idea that maybe people actually possibly have believed those things. But in terms of the institution, it's passed along because it has, it does work for them. That's one way I can think that it gets passed along. There must, there must be others. Absolutely. So I think that's a really important way that some of these get passed along. Um, and I, I think actually that you can see some of the John Birch Society's ideas in current QAnon discourse. Um, I actually was working on that bit this morning, in fact. Uh, the John Birch Society's focus on some topics really resonates still to this day. And I think that that is institutional inheritance. But I think also that many of these things become almost urban legend like for the people that believe them. And they're passed down in conversation or they're passed down from parent to child, right? that they become a piece of identity or a piece of the cultural discourse in a particular group, be that an online group, a local group, an organization. And that lets them stay alive and adjust to different political moments. So they, they kind of morph over time a little bit, right? So we were worried about um, communists. And then we were worried about, you know, anti-Vietnam protesters, though that's also really tied up in some of the anti-communist stuff. And then we're worried about different groups and different groups. But the idea of the deep state is the same kind of idea that Goldwater was talking about with the New World Order, right? The, the language is really not that different. I, I like these thinking, long historical lines. Oh, I do too, and I and I'm and I'm also really fascinated with you know this idea that there's always a sort of background condition of of conspiracy that's operating in the culture, and I'm thinking of U.S. culture here, and sometimes it's it's um, seemingly innocuous, or it's or it's it's clustered and contained in certain groups, so it's working as a cohesive element for certain groups. And I, I think even the way it's handled in popular culture, I'm not a scholar of this, but I think about the film that I used to love a great deal called Slacker, which was made by Richard Linkletter and was about Austin, Texas at the time when I was actually a, a college student there. And, and if anybody who's seen the film, if you haven't seen Slacker, you're going to see it. But there's a, a section where they go into the bookstore and there's a guy 
who you encounter who's um, kind of pasty face guy with thick glasses and he's got a stack of JFK assassination right. conspiracy books. Mm -hmm. And the way that the filmmaker presents him is he can't, he knows everything. He knows every conspiracy. I mean, he is, he's, you know, line <laughs> yep. and verse. Um, and he's not armed. He's not dangerous. He's silly, but he's a master of this very specific knowledge. And as a cultural trope, you can look at that in the 1990s and say, yeah, it's a conspiracy. That's the JFK conspiracy guy. He's fine. Mm -hmm. you invite him to the party, go talk to him <laughs> for five minutes and leave him alone. Yep. And, and yet now when I think of that same cultural trope, I imagine him in body armor storming the Capitol. So I do, you know, because of, because of the past several years, uh, I think it is important to remember that those, those guys do still exist. Um, in fact, some, I, I, a couple of them are my friends um, and I get some really fascinating theories out of them at times, but there are still entire communities that are in utterly non-threatening ways interested in UFOs and cryptozoology and the JFK theories and whether we actually went to the moon. And those are all still around, still circulating, still have, you know, vibrant lives in online and offline spaces without being the motivation for insurrections. Um, they, they exist. And I think it's important for us to kind of separate out where these conversations and communities slide from conspiracy into serious, into serious extremism. Um, I'm not sure I like my phrasing on that, but mm -hmm. I, I think that, you know, there, there still are harmless conspiracists. Um, but there are also people who are moving into extremist spaces through conspiracy. And it's important to understand how those differ. And I would not tell you that I have a firm grasp on where those pull apart um, and or even if they pull apart cleanly. I'm learning so much from this conversation, and, and 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 as I think about that, I think about that as a as a problem of government and law, and law enforcement. As we're talking about speech, and so where do you you know draw the line? And we could just say, well, you know, you can work backwards. You could say bad things have happened because people believe in conspiracy theories, and so we're sorry that your JFK conspiracy theory library um, is really not hurting anybody, but we actually can't we can't let you. Get together in a group. I mean, you know, if people tracking law enforcement, tracking you know online chatter in conspiracy land, as you said, it's a spectrum, mm -hmm. and people believe all kinds of things, and they believe a wide variety of things, some rational and some irrational. Deciding when to police that and how to police that is a real problem in the world that we're facing. Yes, and I I will say very clearly that there are people who are much better qualified than I am to talk about how we really can police those spaces. Um, you know, I think that I think that in many ways conspiracies are bound into American culture both as entertainment and as ways of seeing the world, and I'm. I'm not sure that conspiracy theory can be fully eliminated, but I think we can learn how to have better conversations about it 
and better understand when it's sliding from sort of conspiracy that we aren't worried about to conspiracy that we are worried about and figure out ways to intervene at that, at that point um, and sort of preempt the development of the more frightening versions. But I think there's deep danger in eliminating some genres of storytelling from our world. And I'm probably not in the majority on, on that at the moment, but I will stick to my guns on it. <laughs> want to remind folks you're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking today with conspiracy expert Anna Muldoon, and just want to remind people you can get Anna's uh, brand new co-authored volume, COVID-19 Conspiracy Theories, QAnon, 5G, The New World Order, and other viral ideas. So be sure to check that out. Um, just to come back, you mentioned QAnon a minute ago. I've been trying to educate myself as however I can about QAnon. I've gotten interested in these sort of like popular documentaries about QAnon. So in the Netflix space, you can go watch lots of sort of QAnon breakdown. It's become its own genre, I guess, or like QAnon doc. Um, I'm not sure the ones I've seen really answer my basic questions, but I found that phenomenon interesting. It's like an epiphenomenon of conspiracy. Mm -hmm. I'm through. It makes a whole another data set you have to track as well, I'm sure. Um, but if there's anyone still out there who doesn't understand QAnon, now's the time. So can you tell us um, what it, what uh, is it and how is it operating right now? So from my perspective, because I study the stories themselves, uh, QAnon is kind of a complex mashup of a lot of older conspiracy theories that became entwined with political movements and is really fascinatingly obsessed with whistleblowers even more than the UFO movement, uh, which I didn't think was possible, to be honest. So QAnon is now, I guess, a right-wing conspiracy theory set of conspiracy theories that focuses on infiltration of the government and, well, infiltration of the government by dark forces, aka the deep state, the New World Order, same thing. Um, and has kind of sucked up every nasty conspiracy theory that has existed in the past 50 years. Um, they've co-opted a lot of stories and made them uh, increasingly dangerous. So if you, I won't ask you who is Q, because I think that that's solving the mystery of that is how is it sort of becomes its own meta conspiracy to a certain degree. But, but um, is, how much in the book do you go into the sort of problem of trying to figure out the communities around these, finding out if it's specific individuals? Is it, you know, if, if it's a conspiracy of conspiracies, there's got to be a lot of people who are drawn to it. Mm -hmm. And that means there's a lot of sort of makers, purveyors. Absolutely. Um, I mean, I think with any conspiracy, there are a lot of makers and purveyors. 
um, creators and contributors and followers. Uh, so we actually don't go into that in the book because we decided that it was not as important to us as how COVID had gotten wrapped into those as soon as it appeared mm -hmm. um, and how responses to federal, state, and local um, response to COVID had gotten pulled in so quickly. So we just skipped the whole problem, which I think was smart of us, to be honest, because I don't really have an opinion on who Q is. I'm more interested in how upset uh, everybody gets when anybody identifies anyone as Q. Uh, I was kind of hoping you'd talk a little bit and then you would say, but I really think Q, it's okay, it's okay, we'll come to it, <laughs> no. we'll come back to it. Uh, but, but I'm really glad you talked, you brought COVID back in because my question to this is whether or not how COVID is interacting with QAnon and these other conspiracy theories. Is QAnon's incredible success in 2020 possible without COVID-19? It's hard to prove a negative, mm -hmm. but what's that interaction there as you're, as you're charting it? Um, I think it might've been, but I think COVID helped. Um, if, <laughs> if one of your primary beliefs is that you know, the government has been infiltrated by a dark set of people who want to control your behavior and control society and surveil society, and that you need to unmask those people for the good of the world. Well, unfortunately, the non-pharmaceutical interventions that are our best lines of defense against COVID uh, fit quite neatly into some of those narratives. Um, and they really they hooked onto it really quickly in ways that are interesting in and of themselves. And I'm not quite sure I've decided what I think about how that happened. But I think the, the ability to use COVID to promote this idea of government interference and government control as the big danger rather than the virus absolutely boosted their adherence and um, allowed the development of the sort of very nasty strains of attacking public health workers um, and attacking public health systems. And then the inclusion of the long-term and long-standing anti-vax movement in all of that as well has um, boosted, unfortunately, both the anti-vax movement and QAnon, uh, neither of which I would like to get much social traction. Have we ever seen a conspiracy theory and among what you've studied become central to a political party, a major political party? And, and I don't I don't think Q QAnon has gone mainstream in the Republican Party. I don't see that. But anti-vaccination mm -hmm. has yeah. in this sense. And there are I mean, what I've read is that we can expect in the 2022 midterms there will be that Marjorie Taylor Greene is not going to be the only Q friendly or Q adjacent or even follower that we're going to see running for Congress. So it's it's moving into a much more sort of conventional political space. Is, is that something you've seen before in your research? So not to the extent that we see it now. Um, I think that Goldwater's relationship with the John Birch Society, who we've already discussed, um, mm. is probably the closest um, there are some moments where kind of odd 
quasi conspiracy beliefs around disease have gotten pulled into politics, but in very different ways in the 19th century um, and mostly used to support anti-immigrant policies uh, but or conspiracies about immigration. Um, so no, I think actually what's happening for the US history is somewhat unique and concerning. Now, when Goldwater lost, most of the Republican party abandoned him and to some extent abandoned the influence of the Birch Society, though of course not entirely, uh, but not it was not as pervasive as QAnon has become. Um, and I am not sure how that's going to play out. But I do think you're right that there will be more QAnon candidates in the next set of elections. One of the things that has been pointed out in journalism about, um, and if you go back and watch the, the video piece, the documentary that the New York Times did about January 6th is really it's fascinating at many levels and scary at many levels. But they show you who's in the crowd and they show you sort of white Power, white nationalist groups, yeah. and they show you cons conspiracy purveyors as well. They're not necessarily the same. So they might be in the same crowd. I'm curious about this, and again, it might be, not be the center part of your research, but um, do we expect or should we expect that conspiracy thinking going forward will have a, a violent element to it? Does it is, is that an evolution that we're seeing here or is this just a confluence of events around COVID and Trump and mm. the, just the weirdness of this time? So I think unfortunately that as QAnon has been moved further off though, of course not entirely off mainstream platforms they have encountered more and more and more forums where white nationalist groups really have strong bases and strong footholds. And we know that those groups have, have been intentionally recruiting from people who were not sort of yet that far right, uh, but they have been doing their best to recruit people to further and further right and increasingly racist and white nationalist causes. So um, that's as far as I'll go on that because I don't specialize in extremism. I have fantastic colleagues that do, um, and I don't wanna get the emails telling me that I got it wrong. But definitely I think the moves into more private forums have sped up that, that sort of further to the right shift. That's an important insight, and you're going to get the emails either way. As we were just as we were discussing earlier, it's it's, it's something we've all gotten used to, mm -hmm. unfortunately. But um, just a reminder: I'm talking to Animal Dune today on COVID calls about conspiracies and and COVID. You have a wonderful article out in the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists. I want to make sure we we get a chance to talk about this a little bit. And it came out August 9th. The headline. Um, this is co-authored with Nicholas Evans. COVID-19 lab leak theory, gain of function is a hot topic, but a bad explanation. It's a complicated in all the right ways kind of article, and I hope everybody will, will check it out. But could you take us into lab leak theory world? Sure. Um, you know, I think it's important to point out that COVID is far from the only outbreak 
that has become part of lab leak conspiracies and that there are many of them. Now, there are also real discussions to have about laboratory biosafety and about the security of the biological organisms that we have in many labs. Um, but the conversation around the theory that COVID leaked from a lab has descended into conspiracy spaces where many conversations are no longer based on any kind of evidence other than we're afraid of China and we want someone to blame. Um, so Nick and I really started writing that piece because we were frustrated, um, because gain of function is a very important set of experiments to talk about. Um, it's, it's basically giving a biological organism in the lab, uh, a capability it didn't have before. And... Sometimes we really need that. Uh, we need mouse models of diseases that affect humans. They're really important. Um, and they enable a lot of life-saving research. But some of those experiments qualify as gain-of-function experiments. Not all of them, but some of them. And others are you know, designed to develop therapeutics or understand why a certain virus or bacteria makes us sick. We need good conversations about when and how and where and under what biosafety conditions we should perform gain of function research. But now we're not having those. Uh, we're mostly having conversations about whether COVID was a gain of function experiment. And if it was, then we need to shut everything down. And that is productive neither for discussions of COVID's origin nor for discussions of when and how and where we should do gain-of-function research. So the, the conflation of the two with, I will note, incredibly little evidence um, is concerning and also sort of destructive to the possibility of real discourse about where COVID came from and which animals are its reservoir and if they're going to make something else this nasty. Um, personally, I'd, I'd like to know whether they're about to make something else nasty because original SARS was also nasty and this one is too. So clearly that potential exists and we need to figure that out. It strikes me that this topic is like um, the main um, intersection where all of your interests kind of come together, right? Because, you know, the biosafety and biosecurity background that you have an interest, and then this conspiracy background. And I had lots of conversations with um, colleagues whom I really respect throughout the spring. And the conversation would kind of go like this. It's like, um, somebody presents the idea of lab leak. And then we have to sort of pause a minute. It's like, okay, we, we don't, no, we don't buy into the idea that this is a conspiracy but we still feel that we want to inquire and know. And it comes back to an earlier part of our conversation. You know, in the spectrum of inquiry, it's sometimes hard to know where you're drawing, drawing that line. But if somebody had just taped our conversations and then said, um, college professors are, are conspiracy theorists talking about <laughs> lab leak, the content of the discussion might have sounded very similar to a sort of gain of function lab leak conspiracy theory dialogue. 
And so that's that to me, it shows me a lot of things. But one is just the again, the difficulty about how we approach and package um, our dialogue around these things. And I think I mean, that's one of one of the biggest points that I always like to hit in these things is that we all like every one of us in all of the fields need to get better at talking about uncertainty and mm -hmm. the need to investigate and actually figure something out and how long that sometimes takes, right? Determining the full evolution of original SARS took, what, 17 years? Um, maybe, maybe a little less, but a long time. And there are many viruses out there that we still don't really know where they came from. Um, you know, they came from nature, but we haven't quite figured out how. And that's okay, right? Science is constantly evolving and emerging and getting better at figuring things out. But I think that a lot of, maybe not, I mean, not as much the scientists, but many people would like to say with certainty that we know things. And around something like the emergence of COVID, we know some things, but we definitely don't know everything. Um, and, you know, mostly we also know that the overwhelming majority of viruses come from nature and that the probability is that that's what happened. You can't make anything zero probability. But that's a hard conversation to have with the public when they are frustrated and when this has been so politicized. And so, you know, we all sound like conspiracists sometimes when we're talking about it, leaning one way or the other, right? It's, it's frustrating, but uh, we'll know someday, probably. You, you point <laughs> out in the, in the piece, the, the back and forth, which has now become a sort of theater of its own between Rand Paul and Tony Fauci. And it's a really interesting, illuminating moment because Rand Paul engages a lot in the sort of, I'm just asking questions here kind of, kind of mode. And, yeah. and he, he brings us right up to the doorstep of kind of like weaponized lab leak theory, like China did this on purpose. And so it's China, not Donald Trump, that caused the pandemic. And you go down that road. But then he, oh, he, back, he comes right to that. But then he backs up. He says, no, no, I'm just trying to document that the CDC paid for certain kinds of research. I'm not saying X. Should we demand more of public officials in that kind of space? Or that's just the price of democracy? No, absolutely. We should demand more. Um, you know, I, many of the conspiracy pieces that I work on kind of weave you a loose network of a story and let the individual fill in the finer detail based on what they already believe. Mm. And Rand Paul is a master of that. Um, many of the politicians in these spaces are masters of that. And I think that not quite getting to say the word does not let someone off the hook, right? You can, you can subtly encourage conspiracy thinking without actually quite going on the record saying the words. And I think that we can and should expect better of our public officials when they're discussing these things because stewardship of American discourse and of our ability to have reasonable conversations is kind of an important piece of society that they really should be safeguarding a lot more than they are. I think that to me is a, is an important um, real world in a democracy application of your research, 
which is that people just need to be more educated about what they're hearing when they hear those kind of statements. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's, I think it's difficult to expect people to be educated on every kind of information, right? That's, you know, people have jobs and children and lives and they don't have time to be educated on everything out there. But I do think that we need to do a better job teaching people about how, kind of how communication works, right? right. And how you can lead someone to a conclusion without getting there. Uh, and I, you know, I think everyone who's ever worked in communications or PR probably knows how to do that, but also knows how to tell when someone's doing it to them. Mm. And it's that second piece that I wish that we could teach people more. Because once you realize someone's trying to lead you somewhere, it's a little easier to be like, ooh, but do I actually want to be led in that direction? I'm not sure I believe you. Um, and to tell the difference between scientific scientific conclusions taking you somewhere and someone taking you somewhere with no evidence or evidence that doesn't really apply to what they're talking about. Almost up on time in, in my discussion today with Anna Muldoon on COVID calls. Anna, um, one more thing I just wanted to, to get to, I don't know, in these kind of discussions is like, can we end on a positive note? I'm not sure this is a positive <laughs> note, but maybe it's a productive note, which is that, again, in the, in the work you do and, and understanding the ways that information actually flows. Um, and this term virality, which is related to COVID, but also to information is a fascinating one to me. What is there something to be learned from the ways that conspiracies move the virality of conspiracy? Is there something we can learn and pick up from that? Can we hack that somehow to do a better job of conveying what I would call scientifically sound information, life-saving information, information that's not going to invite people to storm public buildings or harm healthcare workers, but actually save lives. Can we, can we learn from that somehow and use that to good? I, I think about that a lot. Um, so I think one of the things that we can learn from conspiracy is how important stories are, right? One of the reasons conspiracies stick so well is that they are good stories that hook into things that people already believe or want to see. So, you know, I think that we need more stories out there about things like me getting to come home and see my parents uh, because I got vaccinated, because they got vaccinated, and what that has meant to me and to them. Um, and stories about the things that public health interventions allow and have allowed for other people, right? Because the emotional pull and the, the sort of personal connection to the story is a big piece of some conspiracies and how they spread. Again, not gonna make an overarching statement because they're all kind of different. But I think, I think we can learn from that and I think it would be useful. Um, I think a lot of people in public, in public health communication in particular probably already believe those things, but have a hard time convincing other people that right. facts don't stick as well as stories, right? Just to remind everyone, you've been listening to COVID calls and you can usually catch COVID calls at 6 p.m. Eastern time 
please stick around. Join me for a follow-up COVID Calls episode. I'll be talking to Esther Chernak here in just a few minutes. And I want to thank my guest, Anna Muldoon, uh, author of a new book, COVID-19 Conspiracy Theories, QAnon, 5G, The New World Order, and Other Viral Ideas. I can't wait to get my hands on the book. I really appreciate the conversation, Anna, and all the work that you're doing. And thanks for taking time out of, um, of a family trip to, to talk to me today. Anytime, Scott. This is always fun. <laughs> Stay healthy, everyone. We'll see you next time on COVID Calls. Mm-hmm.